want to know what it is. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember. All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Thank you, Zane. Well, look at that. Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. Happy to have you back here again. If you're coming multiple times, we want to build a community. David Penn here. Uh, I'm playing this uh, famous clip from The Matrix because it really typifies where all of us are at now. Um, the fact that this movie was out in 1999, and I must admit, I went to see it, I don't know, 20 times. 20 times. What an admission. I knew there was some information here that was extraordinarily important. And I mastered this movie. Was, I think this was 1999, if I'm not mistaken. And the, um, the idea here that there's a digital prison, as, as we looked at, in the context of this movie, I would like to expand this. You know, the matrix is everywhere. That's what culture is. Culture, culture is the rules that we live our lives by. It's how we organize our thinking. It's how we organize our society. And what is going on here in the matrix and what's going on today in our, in our society just 25 years later is that the control mechanism that is afforded to elites with the digital transmission of culture is so much tighter than the previous oral tradition and then the written tradition and then the television and radio tradition, the university tradition. But let us not quibble about what's going on here because what's going on is it is a system of control and we are born into slavery. That's the point of the movie, and that's what I think people are waking up to, that we actually are slaves to a very 
vile business model, which we keep talking about, which is this slavery and drugs and piracy business model, and we're caught in that, and we're at a moment in history where that business model is going for total control. And I think that people are waking up to this. So participating and taking the red pill together, collectively, all we're promising is the truth. And I said this in a previous podcast. I'm dedicated to truth and nonviolence. That's what I'm trying to do here. Because this is a political podcast in this sense. I'm involved in politics. I want all of us to be involved in politics because that's how we change the matrix. It's only going to change if all of us enter it collectively and assert our human wills in a change, a cultural change. And what I've been proposing is a change to a well-being-centered culture and a well-being-centered politics. And I've been proposing this here in Minnesota, and uh, I only want to say this today. The party must be welcoming to all. The party must be welcoming to all, really welcoming at the level of our heart so that all can come that want to. Right now, if a party is not welcoming, if a group's not welcoming, it's exclusionary. And that traps people where they are. It prevents the system from evolving. And that's the point, right? When things are exclusionary, they're exclusionary for a reason. So today's podcast, of course, we've been building up to this. Today's podcast is why are people exclusionary? And that would be called racism. And I want to go through the the history of racism and anti-Semitism as it came from uh, uh, Europe and went into the uh, intellectual centers of our country. And I want to look at this and understand how it's affecting our politics today. But first, a story. First, a story about a very, very, very um, great friend of mine. Known him for years. In fact, a super athlete. One of the elite athletes of his generation. And um, we don't talk that often, but I talk to him enough to know what he's thinking and stay in touch with him. And this man is an outdoorsman. He's living a very uh, natural lifestyle, and he's a very highly trained individual. And I talked to him, and he, uh, he told me he had a blood clot, which, knowing his well-being, I immediately said to him, why do you think that happened? And guess what he said? He attributed his blood clot possibly to the vaccines. And he was, you know, he was on a pharmaceutical and he was upset about it and almost could have killed him. I mean, he has a very high level of well-being. So I find it hard to believe that a man of his well-being would generate a two-foot clot in his leg. So he attributed it, and I said to him, have you taken the red pill? And he goes, yes. And I said, how far down the rabbit hole do you go? And he goes, all the way to the bottom. Well, isn't that what we're all doing here? It's like, really? 
Well, I want to make sure we get all the way down to the bottom. So I have some stories today and some background. We're going to go through some intellectual tradition where this is really coming from. I keep talking about this business model and we got all these problems and I fingered the European intellectual tradition and I'm kind of, this is kind of a setup for where we're at. So if, if a friend of mine who I know very well is understanding that he was used as inventory and that he was fed a drug that actually damaged his well-being and he's willing to accept the implications of that. And we talked about how important it was for him to enhance his well-being, to counteract it, and he got it because he's, I mean, I know where he's coming from. And if we can, as a, as a, as a society, as a culture, start to put our community's well-being at the highest priority, that the political parties start to put human well-being, human well-being at the highest priority. Well, I think that's a value for our citizens, and it's going to encourage our citizens to get involved in politics because the outcome, the benefit of your participation, if this thing is working the way it could, I'm staying away from the should statement. I'm just saying the potential is there that this could benefit everyone's well-being. So as I walk through politics, I'm continuously running into all kinds and all manner of things that make me feel not good. That's why people, good people, don't involve themselves in politics. We had this conversation, but I think it's worth bringing up again. Good people don't want to hang around with bad people. It's very natural. So that gives bad people control of politics. Well, that's got to come to an end because we're $32 trillion in debt and we're on the verge of nuclear war. So we have to get involved in politics and we have to do it on our terms, not on the terms of bad people, but on the terms of good people, which is honesty and nonviolence. For example, let's say there's a, a disagreement in a political context. You make strong constitutional documents, and in that constitutional framework, you have a vote. And it can be very spirited with very spirited oratory and try to convince people, and they try to convince you, have a beautiful uh, American exchange of ideas with the goal of creating a more perfect union, and then take a vote. And if the vote is a fair vote, we know it's fair. The outcome is the end of the controversy. Hey, go get a beer. We're friends again. Let's start to get back to some well-being politics where people can disagree. They can use the art of communication to the best communicator. That's the person who gets the spoils, right? Let's get into the politics, the fun of this, the part of it that makes us well. And when we're done arguing, Let's go get a beer. Anyhow, I'm just trying to set up a new politics of well-being. People need well-being. So, my father, my father was an academic, and um, I grew up in a house and around a community that viewed my father as a great man. So I, I looked up to my dad uh, because a lot of people respected him, and I was a young kid, 
and I used to go to his classes with him, and he'd have hundreds of people that he would transfix with his oratory. And when I say hundreds, he, was, he had the best attended classes in the history of the University of Minnesota. And people would really come there to see him. He was a, a riveting orator. And the subject, the subject of his oratory, or what he was most famous for, a class that he started in 1967, it was a class called Racial Thought. And at that time, you have, you know, to put it into some kind of context, we're in the middle of the black liberation movement. Uh, the racial divide was a chasm, incredible chasm. There was no discussion in the society at all of the genocide against the natives. None. Hadn't even come up yet. Had not even been brought up. And, of course, we were just post this genocide in Europe that had taken place under the Nazis. And my father waded into that with the intention of helping students understand how they think about race. And he dealt with the genocide of the Native Americans decades before it was fashionable. And if you take a look at it in terms of the historical or the year, this was in the 60s, World War II ended in 45. The people that he went after, which was uh, a man named uh, Herbert Spencer and Charles Darwin and Galton, the people that he went after, these were the pillars of the British academic world. And they all lived from 1840 up until the early 1900s. They were all contemporaries of each other. And they were actually revered in the European intellectual tradition because they were biologists. I mean, these, these, these types of scholars were polymaths. This was before the era of specialization. These people knew philosophy and they knew science. They knew a wide range and they were productive across a wide range of disciplines. So their productivity and their domination of the uh, English intellectual tradition made them revered historically as the greatest scholars of their time. And we're, we know that this is true in our time because we know who Charles Darwin is, a little bit less Spencer, and not at all Galton. But these three, these are three amigos, and we got to sort these people out. And my father was sorting them out. My God, he opened the door to critiquing these people. So this is like getting in the ring with Muhammad Ali of that tradition. These people were the, were the heavyweights. And this, this, uh, this scholar from Minnesota, University of Minnesota, that's another story. He could have been at Harvard, my dad, but he stayed here to take care of his mother and father. How's that for the old ways? Okay, beautiful, right? Could have gone to Harvard. Nope, had an old mother and father here, and he refused that chance to stay here, and he loved to teach. He was not so interested in being famous. He was really interested in you know, teaching students. And he went after these people. He went after them. So we're going to talk a lot about that uh, over the next hours of being together. And uh, I want to remind you, this content, I think it's critical content. I hope you do too. We're trying to start a community. If you like the content, please forward it, particularly if you're in politics. 
If you're watching this because you know me in politics and this is meaningful to you, please send it to everybody you know in politics because that way we can spread the word of a new politics together. And all it is is share and send. Not a big deal. So thanks for your help. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, before I get into this uh, subject today, which is this, uh, this story about uh, social Darwinism and uh, eugenics, really, that's what we're going to be talking about. You know, the theory of, evolu the theory of evolution, you know, the survival of the fittest, social Darwinism, and then eugenics. That's what we're going to be talking about, which is really an interesting subject to, to mine into here at this time, you know, in the history of America, in this experiment of consciousness. I think we're ready to start parsing this stuff out. I want to do a little bit of um, just news. Got to stay up with the news. This is part of my responsibility. I want everybody to know that um, the government of China has proposed a uh, a 12-point peace plan to settle the Ukraine crisis. And, you know, when you read it, it sounds like the United States of America wrote it a long time ago when we were still cognizant of the Atlantic Charter. Number one, respect the sovereignty of all countries. Number two, abandon a Cold War mentality. Sounding good to me. Cease hostilities. Who's going to get on the other side of that? Resume peace talks. Well, that's a winner. Resolve the humanitarian crisis. How are you going to argue against that one? Protect civilians and prisoners of war. If you want to kill prisoners of war, please raise your hand. Keeping nuclear power plants safe. Reducing strategic risks like nuclear war. Facilitating grain exports. Stopping unilateral sanctions. Keeping industrial supply chains stable. And promoting post-conflict reconstruction. You know, this is a peace plan, and quite predictably, it was immediately rejected across the West. And Zane, can you just play this MSNBC, this MSNBC piece, please? Good evening from Kiev. I'm Ali Velshi. On the first anniversary of this phase of Russia's war against Ukraine, a global superpower says it's calling for peace. Early Friday morning, Beijing time, the Chinese government released a 12-point plan, which is calling, quote, China's, which it's calling, quote, China's position on the political settlement of the Ukraine crisis. Now, while lacking in specifics, the document goes out of its way to urge Russia not to use nuclear weapons in this war, quote, Nuclear weapons must not Stop, be used please. and nuclear wars must... Stop, please. I just want to read this one myself with you to see if this was directed at Russia. Let's just see if it was directed at... Re number eight, reducing strategic risks. Nuclear weapons must not be used and nuclear wars must not be fought. The threat or use of nuclear weapons should be stopped. Nuclear proliferation must be prevented and nuclear crisis averted. China opposes the research, development, and use of chemical and biological weapons by any country under any circumstances. You know, I don't think this was directed specifically at Russia. Just want to bring that up. This would be called, well, eh, maybe it was a journalistic error. Could you please continue? 
weapons in this war. Quote, nuclear weapons must not be used and nuclear wars must not be fought. The threat or use of nuclear weapons should be opposed, end quote. Now, the document also takes a swipe at NATO with a section titled, quote, Abandoning the Cold War Mentality, and it decries U.S. sanctions against Russia, quote, Unilateral sanctions and maximum pressure cannot solve the issue. They only create new problems. In a wind-raging press conference today, Ukrainian President Zelensky seemed to signal an openness to a good-faith peace plan from China, and he says he hopes to meet with Chinese Premier Xi Jinping. But it remains to be seen exactly Could you stop, how please, for a second? You know, this is very interesting. Zelensky wants to meet with Xi Jinping. And why would that be? Because the off-ramp of this thing is who's got the most money. And Mr. Big has come to play. See, the Chinese are getting involved over here in this region as a peacemaker. So that's going to stir things up in a way that's unprecedented. Because the last point of their plan is promoting post-conflict reconstruction. In other words, who's banking this deal in the future? So Mr. Zelensky is going to go take an offer from President Xi. This is unprecedented and unexpected. Please continue. Seer Beijing is about ensuring a peaceful resolution to this conflict. U.S. officials say their intelligence indicates that China is considering providing weapons to Russia, which would only prolong the war, not bring it to an end. As the Wall Street Journal Stop, report, please. Stop. You know, there's a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of presumptions here in this unbiased news reporting because it's unbiased, of course. It would be called um, fortune-telling, predicting the future. That's a cognitive distortion. Chinese weapons would only serve to prolong this conflict. That's fortune-telling. We don't know what Chinese weapons would do to the conflict because it's in the future. We can't predict the future, number one. And number two, the Chinese are occupying a previous post-World War II democratic liberal order position. They're calling for peace and supplying the weapons. Sounds familiar. Let's continue, please, Zane. Weapons to Russia, which would only prolong the war, not bring it to an end. As the Wall Street Journal reports, quote, U.S. officials familiar with intelligence reports say that if Beijing opts to provide weapons, it would also include artillery in addition to drones and possibly other weapons to help Russian forces stave off an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive this summer. And just yesterday, China abstained from a U.N. Security Council vote condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The resolution passed overwhelmingly anyway, with 141 countries voting in favor of it. 31 other countries abstained, along with China, while seven, including Russia and North Korea and Syria, voted against it. Today, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, issued a strong rebuke to Russia on the U.N. floor and said only Russian President Vladimir Putin can end this war of aggression. One year and one week ago, on February 17th, 2022, I warned this council that Russia was planning to invade Ukraine. Russia's representative, the same representative who will speak today, called these, and I quote, groundless accusations. Seven days later, on February 24th, 2022, Russia launched its full-scale invasion. No member of this council 
should call out for peace while supporting Russia's war on Ukraine and on the UN Charter. In this war, there is an aggressor and there is a victim. Russia fights for conquest. Ukraine fights for its freedom. Stop, please. This is our position as a country, that Russia is the aggressor and Ukraine fights for freedom. We've done a lot of work on this together. There are many ways to look at this situation. Again, when there's four corners in an intersection and there's a car accident, there are four versions of the truth. Four versions of the truth. What is the truth of this situation? As you're going to hear, there is no willingness on the part of the United States government to negotiate for peace. No effort to broker a peace negotiation. That is the truth. The rest of it is empty talking. Please continue. Russia fights for conquest. Ukraine fights for its freedom. If Russia stops fighting and leaves Ukraine, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. Stop again, please. That's not necessarily true. Russia went to war from their perspective to protect their border. There had been a long war there. It started in 2014, not in 2022. This has been an ongoing conflict. We know this. It's on, it's on YouTube. The facts are there. They're not scrubbed. It's in Wikipedia. The complicity and the involvement in the United States government in this region is well documented. So let us know, at least as American citizens, the totality of the yin and yang. Let's not have one side of the story. Let's look at the whole story. But I have a very simple way to resolve this. Is war good for well-being? No, it's not, particularly fighting a war in someone else's backyard. Why? Are we fighting and killing, participating in arming, funding a war that's killing hundreds of thousands of people? How did we get here? Well, we're going to talk about it on the other side of this news segment. Please, let's continue. Ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. The fact remains, one man, Vladimir Putin, started this war. One man can end it. In a telling response today, Russia's UN Can you stop it for a second? I do agree that Vladimir Putin could end this war, and I wish he would. I wish Vladimir Putin would just stop fighting, call a ceasefire, and call for peace talks. Because to resolve a conflict of this magnitude, everyone has to get something after this kind of bloodletting. So it's possible for people to sit down if well-being, human well-being, and humanity's peaceful future is important to them, we can stop fighting. I urge President Putin to call a ceasefire. I urge President Biden to join him in a ceasefire. Let's just quit killing each other and talk about it. Let's walk it back. Please continue. The Quake calls for peace with calls to end Russia as we know it. 
Any expression using the word peace, which are being disingenuously used, including today by high representatives of Ukraine and Western countries, what is meant is actually something completely different. What is meant is a capitulation of Russia and inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia, ideally followed by the disintegration of the country and redrawing the territories it, um, it includes. Stop, please. So there's the Russian perspective, and we need to listen to it, the listening part. With the Rush, you know, I don't think they're scamming. I think they are saying that what the West wants is for the Russians to suffer a strategic defeat followed by the disintegration of their country. I think that is true because why do I know it? Because I could play many of our political leaders calling for Putin's assassination for the end of the Russian Federation. I mean, this is the, they're just mirroring back what our leaders are saying. In fact, I'm going to run that next time because they're not saying something out of the blue. There's a whole list, a whole list of, of, or of evidence of our leaders calling for the disintegration of the Russian Federation. So they are, in their minds, reacting to what people are saying, not what's in their head secretly but the words coming out of their lips. So if they wanted to say something else, like let's have a peace talk that respects the integrity of the Russian Federation and leads to a reintegration of the Russian Federation into European commerce, let us learn from this. I mean, these things are possible. I realize these people hate each other and they're killing each other. That's why there has to be some voices of reason of other people like the Chinese, like the American government, calling for peace. Go ahead, please. Now, during that press conference today, President Zelensky answered a number of questions about the future of this war and how he believes Russia will respond in the coming days and weeks and months, including a question that I asked Zelensky about potential threats to other former Soviet countries. Last week, the president of Poland had said that if this war is still going on one year from today, there is a real danger that an empowered Russia will invade another state. Given how effectively you have uh, held back a Russian advance with NATO's help here in Ukraine, is it even conceivable that, that Russia could invade another state, particularly a NATO state? Unfortunately, yes. Stop, please. That's not really a journalistic question. That's an editorial question. We're starting to, now let's just think about how brains work. Ali Velci is asking a question of Zelensky for Zelensky to get into the head of Putin and predict what Putin might do in the future. None of this is helpful. This is not dealing with the reality of what we can see today in this moment, this frame. This is projecting our fears into the future to let them dominate our presence. This, our present. This is creating fear to dominate our present reality. This is propaganda. It's not helpful. Please continue. I believe it's possible. And that might happen. Why? Well, I, can, I can give you an explanation. President Putin needs to demonstrate successes and victories. So Stop, please. Why does, does Putin really need to demonstrate anything to anybody? 
Come on. It's Vladimir Putin. He's got a 75% approval rating in his country for this war. His economy's doing great. His people are behind him. He doesn't have, he's, he's doing just fine. They're making stuff up whole cloth. Please continue. Demonstrate successes and victories. So there is not going to be a success uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine. Stop again. Again, predict in the future that the Russians will not succeed in Ukraine. That's not clear to me. I can't predict the future. It's war. War is very unpredictable. Very unpredictable. Please continue. Not going to be a success uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine, and uh, he will not succeed with the massive revolt. Stop right here. You know, Zane, when we have the next podcast, let's play the uh, interview with President Biden three weeks before Afghanistan fell, where he said there's 300,000 Afghanis that are fighting. They're well-armed. We're going to be just fine. They're, the, Afghanistan's not going to fall. You know, the, peop, the reason that people try to stay away from war, it's like asking a question when you don't know the answer. It's risky. Strange things happen in war. This country, the Ukraine, is only existing to fight this fight because of the money that's coming from the American people. We, the people, are financing this genocide. We, the people, we, the people, are supporting this because our elected leaders have convinced us that, are we convinced? I don't know. Another thing to check, some polling. Anyhow, let's continue. Uh, in, in, in Ukraine. So he would need to demonstrate success. He could have success in weak areas. And better, it would be countries that was under the influence of uh, Moscow before the war or during the Soviet times. You know, the examples of Moldova, there's evidences that they wanted to replace the leadership of the country. Now, let's think how they can do that. How? I mean, they don't have common borders with Moldova. That means there would be an amphibious operation. I think that Russia will try to have at least some sort of success. But look, a missile crossed the airspace of Romania. You know, that. And then that, Can you that stop it, I guess uh, President Jelinski's musings about what's going to happen in the future and what Russia's going to do is very gripping because he's at war and he's in a war zone. But really, he's speaking to a bunch of things that he has no knowledge of. He's guessing. And the guess, you know, why not say, I think that President Putin, if we would sit down with him, we could come to some kind of an agreement. I mean, you know, these people are telling a story. Telling a story is okay. It's just not a story of peace. He's telling a story that supports further support for this war. And I'm not thinking that's, that's necessarily the best idea when nuclear weapons are afoot, when nuclear war is becoming more and more likely. We need to stop this war. It doesn't matter how we stop it, in my opinion, you know, how the cake gets cut. We need to stop the war. Because if this war keeps going, every day that it goes on, the possibility of nuclear war increases. Please continue. 
Ukrainian territory. So they will keep on doing steps like that, I mean Russians. And it's better to prevent such capabilities through sanctions and through making any other steps. Thank you. So the last thing that Zelensky said is he talked about sanctions. And this war is all about sanctions. When uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine, the United States imposed very intense financial sanctions on the Russian economy, using its position as the dollar hegemon to freeze Russia out and to, from the goal of the people that did the policy, which would be the Biden administration, collapse and destroy the Russian economy, therefore degrading their ability to wage war. And the ruble got hammered for a very short period of time. And then it bounced up like a cork. And what had happened is, is that the U.S. government had gone all in on its illusion of dollar supremacy. That was a scam. The dollar supremacy was always based on people being willing to participate in the system. And when the United States went all in with these sanctions, and there's been sanctions placed on dozens of countries, every time we've done that, we have, as a country, we the people, we've walked one step back from being an impartial provider of the world's currency, and we turn that currency into a weapon of American hegemony. Okay, great. American hegemony is great. We all got the benefits. The downside is people will eventually say we're not participating. So when that sanction regime was placed on the Russians and the Russian economy did not collapse, the only thing left for our regime to do, our people, we the people to do, was to go all in with a military conflict to back up the dollar. The emperor had no clothes. And that's why the Chinese are calling for peace because I think they're concerned about a nuclear war. And that's why our government is saying we're not interested in this peace at all. They just keep going right down the road. They want a military victory. At the same time, the Russians are saying we will not suffer a strategic defeat. Let's look at why I'm calling for peace again. Our country, we the people, our country is seeking a military victory in the Ukraine. And the Russians are saying they will not suffer a strategic defeat. That's why I'm calling for peace. It's actually quite evident to me we all need to get into this and ask for peace. Okay, I went off on a long rant about this because it's my responsibility to do so as an American citizen at this time talking to you because we have to keep the most important issue in everyone's face and not allow anything else to come first. It's that serious. Okay. Having done my job, I want to go back to um, this uh, phenomenal uh, war idea, war, the ultimate in social Darwinism. What is social Darwinism? You know, social Darwinism is a concept that came out of this period. I was talking about this period from, say, 18... 40, it was codified, 1840 through the early 1900s. Social Darwinism is the theory that individuals, groups, and peoples are subject to the same Darwinian laws of natural selection 
as plants and animals. Culture and people are like plants and animals. Seems reasonable. Now largely discredited, social Darwinism was advocated by Herbert Spencer and others. They don't talk about Darwin, just Spencer. He's taking the fall. And others in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and was used to justify political conservatism. That's a little bit of a spin. Imperialism and racism and to discourage intervention and reform. So we had three isms that came out of this period. They were codified in this period, but they had been banging around in people's heads for hundreds of years previous. They came out of just the natural thought experiment of consciousness. Some groups became technologized in a way that other groups did not. And of course, those that had that technology had what? A better ability to dominate and control. Other groups were living in harmony with nature in the natural way. Experiment in consciousness. An experiment. And there was a group that emerged, a group that emerged in England. And that's where the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution took place, a flowering of science and technology. And these people developed the empire, the empire, the empire. And the empire ruled for hundreds of years, and it engaged in the colonization of people, that means the subjugation of people, the taking of slaves, and the extraction of wealth, that's piracy, and slavery, and drugs was the sugar trade at that time, and the tea trade, that's what that empire did. And humongous fortunes were made by a very small number of people. And there was great suffering and great displacement, and there was revolutions and wars and conflict. And these people, that would be the crown that funded the universities of Europe particularly I'm speaking specifically in in England, in Great Britain, they actually funded a kind of intellectual discourse that actually justified the extraction of wealth and the subjugation of people, which was the business model of the crown. And they came up, and this, of course, spread into the United States because we were part of the crown when we started. And this is what we need to focus on where do these ideas come from, and what do they mean, and how are they present today in our intellectual world, in our, in our culture, in that matrix that we live in? So we got imperialism. Imperialism is the state policy, practice, or advocacy of extending power and dominion, especially by direct territorial acquisition or by gaining political and economic control of other territories and peoples. Imperialism, it's a bad word. And it was justified by social Darwinism and another concept in this country, unique to the United States, the concept of manifest destiny. Everybody kind of has that in their back of their mind. We've heard of that before, manifest destiny. Manifest destiny, a phrase coined in 1845, is the idea that the United States is destined by God, its advocates believed, to expand its dominion 
and spread democracy and capitalism across the entire North American continent. In other words, it was a cover story for a big land grab and the suppression and elimination of Native tribes throughout the United States. So these three intellectual ideas, imperialism, social Darwinism, and manifest destiny, they came from someplace. They came from someplace. They didn't just pop up out of nowhere. They evolved. Particularly if you're into this Darwinian thing, we know ideas are evolving. That's the whole point of this. They were codified. These evolving ideas were codified and used by the crown to justify the crown's business model. And the three primary academics, the three pillars of this thing, and these guys were famous. Herbert Spencer, Charles Darwin, and Sir Francis Galton. These people were famous and unimpeachable as the bedrock of the British intellectual tradition. They were revered. They were revered. And their ideas were brought into the United States. First of all, they were so revered. Remember, these, these different monarchies were all united by birth. Go look it up on Wikipedia. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a genealogical fact that, for example, the Tsar of Russia and the King of England were first cousins. That's just a fact. And that there was a relationship amongst many of these countries at the level of family. So the crown was spread out throughout Europe. And these monarchies funded the universities. And the font of these universities, the font was the crown's money. And you had these different schools. We had this, this British school, Darwin and Spencer and Galton. You had the Vienna school. You had the German physicists. I mean, there was different areas of expertise. And the British specialized in justifying their rape and robbery of the world. And they did it. The, the, main, the guy that's taking the fall, and I remember my father talking about Herbert Spencer. This is in the 60s. And the bravery that was involved in taking this guy and cost, cost my father his job. He was basically saying that uh, the, refer the revered grandfather of the intellectual tradition that dominated the academies was a racist and a bad person, and he proved it. And how did he do it? He just read all of his writings, not just the part that everybody liked to read. He read the parts that people didn't like to read. So Spencer, Spencer was a English philosopher, a psychologist, a biologist, an anthropologist, and a sociologist. This guy worked across a wide range. Spencer originated the expression. It was Spencer, survival of the fittest, which is coined in Principles of Biology. Spencer was the proponent and the progenitor of, or the focuser, the, the person who interpreted the idea of social Darwinism. We should take a look at Mr. Spencer. You got something popped up for him, don't you? Social Darwinism, and uh, let's just redo this one. Social Darwinism, Galton, Darwin, and Spencer. Let's take a look at that. Well, Today in the... It's maybe. Let's see where it goes. Social Darwinism.
According to Darwin's groundbreaking publication entitled On the Origin of Species, only plants and animals who dominate and evolve in their given environment will survive to pass their genes on to the next generation. In an attempt to make his ideas understood by the public at large, Darwin referenced sociologist Herbert Spencer's struggle for existence, which morphed into Darwin's now famous tagline, survival of the fittest. Darwin's tagline prompted Spencer to draw parallels between Darwin's scientific ideas and those of laissez-faire or unregulated capitalism during the Industrial Revolution purporting that only the fittest humans would rise to the top, while the poor and genetically unfit would ultimately remain at the bottom. When social Darwinism became popular in the late 1800s, British scholar Sir Francis Galton proposed a new science of improving the human race by weeding out the weakest undesirables in a given society. Known as eugenics, the movement first caught on in the United States during the first part of the 20th century when 32 states passed laws resulting in the forced sterilization of some 64,000 Americans, including immigrants, people of color, the mentally ill, as well as weak-minded women of childbearing age. When Adolf Hitler came to power, he professed that the survival of the Aryan race depended on an unpolluted gene pool, leading to the mass extermination of ethnic groups deemed unfit for Germanic procreation. Hitler's final solution led to the Holocaust of World War II, when Nazi Germany exterminated more than six million Jews, Gypsies, Poles, Soviets, disabled people, and homosexuals. Today, with the advent of gene editing techniques such as CRISPR, many critics believe that social Darwinism may someday be on the rise again, when and if parents are allowed to edit the genetic traits of their yet unborn children making social Darwinism an ongoing moral and ethical debate over Darwin's original definition of the term survival of the fittest. And well, that's just great. It. That's just fantastic. So there you have it. I mean, really, there's not much more to say than that. But we have to say more because we got to sort this out and understand how it's affecting each of us today because these ideas of Darwinism and social Darwinism and eugenics are so baked into the Western intellectual tradition that we accept this. We accept this and we don't even understand where it came from or what's going on here. And there's a punchline here I want to get to that really is quite provocative, but I want to set it up with a little bit more color Let's take a look at this Galton in eugenics, this next video. Let's really get into this Sir Francis Galton. This originated in England with the work of Francis Galton. He studied traits and family lines and began the nature versus nurture debate. He focused on twins to answer the question of what was more powerful, heredity or, or environment. He proposed positive eugenics, encouraging the reproduction of eminent men and their families whose accomplishments he had tied to the progress of civilization. He cautioned against drawing premature and harmful conclusions from his work, but like his cousin, Charles Darwin, his work was used as justification for some of the greatest crimes in history. Negative eugenics is the application of means to discourage the breeding of the unfit, 
including anti-race mixing marriage laws, segregation, sterilization, and euthanasia. Eugenics is not a true science, and though it is dressed up in mathematics to give it legitimacy, it has much more in common with the quack science of phrenology. Phrenology was the study of the size and shape of the human head to determine intelligence and character. The industrial age had thrown millions of people off the farm and into the city to work in low-paying factory jobs. The sheer scale of the problems of mental illness, alcoholism, and crime seemed overwhelming. Added to this, millions of Eastern Europeans and Italians came to America and made the native population uneasy. They were viewed as bad stock compared to the more Nordic types that had made up earlier waves of immigration from Western Europe. Okay, that's Suggest good. That's good. So the case is being made here, because we're talking about the United States of America, this, this intellectual tradition that came out of Northern Europe of um, social Darwinism, which was really sharpened through war. I mean, war was kind of the social Darwinist's ultimate crucible of the survival of the fittest, because in a war, you live or you die. And they, they broadened that out to cultures and countries and, you know, became a, a struggle. And, and they actually viewed the struggle as being good because they thought it made people stronger. They didn't want uh, programs that addressed the need of the poor or the uh, uh, injured because they believed that they were a, neg, uh, a negative drag on the genetic development of humanity. Uh, we have to frame this out. We've got to frame this idea out correctly from the start because I think where the scholars of the 60s went wrong in the 70s <clears throat> is they exposed this for the racist idea that it was, but the polarity that they sought to bring it to, which was civil rights, was incorrect. They did not understand where this was coming from, and that's kind of the, the uh, punchline of what we're going to be talking about. But this, the, the opposition to this thinking uh, has led to critical race theory and so, you know, the social Darwinism has become social equity. So we're, we're in that polarity, social Darwinism, social equity. Again, I am saying I think that's the wrong polarity. I think that's where we went wrong in this experiment of thinking. Because I think we don't know who these social Darwinists really were. We don't know what they were doing. We don't know what secret societies they belong. They, they, like Galton, they belong to secret societies. President Kennedy has that famous speech. We don't like secret societies. Well, <clears throat> the first key of overcoming secret societies is to call them out. So what were these people doing, Darwin and Galton and Spencer? They were justifying, they were on the payroll of the Crown, in the Crown's Academy, and they were justifying the business model of the Crown. They were saying that the British Empire was strong enough from the perspective of social Darwinism to take slaves, to dominate peoples, to extract money, and that that was correct and justified because that led to the evolution of the human race. Their entire intellectual output, 
was a scam. And it was immediately uptaken in both the United States and in Germany. You can see it in the concept of the master race. The Germans took this idea, and what they said was, hey, you British people aren't the master race. We Germans are. And guess what? They threw down from about 1870 through 1945 to have that out. And what happened was they fought to a draw. The British and the Germans got throttled, and that ended up with the United States being the world's hegemon since 45 with the post-World War II democratic liberal order. But they actually, they actually took this to the max. They said, there will be a winner. The strongest will survive. No, they both were beat. <laughs> What's that one saying? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Everybody's toothless and blind. That's what they did to themselves. And let's think about what Christianity is the Judeo-Christian heritage, as juxtaposed here. Not social Darwinism and equity, social equity. No, let's, let's juxtapose social Darwinism in the Judeo-Christian experience or faith in God. What was being uh, advanced in that ideology? And that was the protection of the weak among us. There was no longer child sacrifice. There was a premium placed on caring for the old and for the young, for creating a cooperation and for having ethical rules which blunted the survival of the fittest. So it was really the Judeo-Christian experience or that philosophy, not necessarily how it played out as the Holy Roman Empire, but what the philosophy as Jesus explained it, or as Moses explained it, or as Abraham explained it, what was that tradition juxtaposed with social Darwinism? And why were these two in conflict? That's what we got to figure out. That's the red pill. You take that red pill, and you're going to know exactly what's going on in this world today. And people are going to say, oh, you're wearing a tin hat, tinfoil hat. No, no, just go read your source material and be willing to talk to people. Because let me tell you about Mr. Galton. According to the records of the United Grand Lodge of England, it was in February 1844 that Galton became a Freemason at the Scientific Lodge held at the Red Lion Inn in Cambridge. Cambridge, the seat of English learning. That's where the Scientific Lodge was. Wow, what a surprise. A secret society wound into Cambridge. Unbelievable. Who would have thunk it? Progressed, and this guy, Galton, he progressed through three Masonic degrees in a heartbeat. February 5th, 1844, he was a fellow craft. 11 March, 1844, Master Mason. Wow, that's quick. He went from apprentice on February 5th, 1844, to fellow craft on March 11th, to a master on 13th May. Somebody ran Brother Galton through the system in a hurry. They put him at the top overnight. In other words, Darwin wasn't a Mason, Spencer wasn't a Mason, but Galton, who was in that group, ran into the Masons, and that operationalized an intellectual tradition into a political strategy through a secret society. Great. We'll talk about it more in the future. 
but it's very significant. What were these people promoting? Social Darwinism. And they just codified thinking that had been banging around in people's heads for hundreds of years. This was a paid-for effort to whitewash the Crown's business model. And these people were revered and regaled as the center of the British intellectual tradition until an academic named Misha Penn, my father, in the 1960s, stood up and said Spencer was a racist. Wow. That was very brave. Cost him his job. So when you tell the truth, there's a price to tell the truth. You have to be willing to pay the price. And uh, I come from that tradition where intellectual honesty, where truth is the most important thing that I can uh, pursue in my life. I don't say I know what ultimate truth is, but I'm trying to get there closer and closer all the time with the knowledge, as I want to share with you, that there's many ways to describe things. That's why we need to have a robust political dialogue where we sit and talk one amongst another and have strong constitutional processes which allow us to sort into these ideas. When we're fighting each other and hating each other and we're exclusionary of each other, we just lock this thing down exactly the way it is today. And if you look out at the fruit of this labor, where we are in this experiment today, with falling life expectancies, a $32 trillion national debt, and on the verge of nuclear war, and we look at this and we say, it's all good, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. Now, the rest of us, let's identify what's happened here. We live in a culture. It's the matrix. That matrix tells us how to survive together. Cultures are survival strategies. What has happened is, a is, and this is critical, a very small group of humans have usurped and stolen our culture from us and are using it only for their survival. And in their eugenicist philosophy and in their social Darwinist philosophy, they believe if they survive and we don't, that's a proof that what happened was correct because they don't believe in God. They don't have any sensitivity about well-being or community. They're living in this Darwinist, Malthusian, Galtonian, Spencerian world, which was a paid-for ideology that the Crown created to cover their tracks, to scientize their subjugation of people throughout the world. And I also want to say, these same people are still in charge of our academies. I've sent five of my children through private school. I've watched how they're taught and what they're taught. We don't have to be fooled again. Fool me white once. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. It's not going to happen. That's what's happening today. We're waking up. We are collectively taking that red pill. We live in a world of ideas. We live in a culture. 
We need to understand that these Darwinian ideas, these eugenicist ideas, are alive today throughout our culture, and they are leading us to extinction because there are a group of people who are social Darwinists who believe that their survival is all that matters. I think what the academics did was they went over to this social equity piece, which we're living in, which is also controlled by the same money. We need to jump out of this and get into the world of the spirit, which I think is the true polarity. We need to go back to faith. We need to understand that faith in God, faith in humanity, faith in the natural way is the natural antagonist, complementary antagonist to this social Darwinism, not social equity. When you go social Darwinism, social equity, you're playing the same game. You own, Because both of these ideas, social Darwinism and social equity, do not involve spirit. They're purely anti-God, both of them, and rely on man's reason to justify a business model or to oppose a business model. But it's said with God, all things are possible. So when we go into that spiritual world and reclaim our spiritual connection, our natural way connection, we'll just rediscover our humanity and our connection to all humanity and our desire to have well-being for ourselves and for everyone else. Now we have a natural polarity which leads us out of this endless spiritualist argument. It gets us to stop killing each other, which is the key, truth and nonviolence. We're going to keep coming back to this and sharpening these ideas and turning this into a political action plan because we have to liberate people from the idea of social Darwinism. We have to show people, even in that video, CRISPR, we're get, we have euthanasia now. What is euthanasia but kind of a hidden social Darwinism? What is, hey, let's play this piece on Margaret Sanger. Can we get into that piece on Margaret Sanger? Because she comes right out of this social Darwinist, you know, uh, background, and it's going to, you know, it's, it's, just play this. This is great. This will help everybody get some. Go ahead. Let it rip. And Parenthood will remove the name of founder Margaret Sanger from its Manhattan clinic over what it called her harmful connections to the eugenics movement. Sanger was a leading advocate of the eugenics movement and promoted sterilization of people she deemed to have undesirable traits. Former Planned Parenthood clinic director Abby Johnson said Sanger's philosophy endures at the US-based abortion group. Margaret Sanger is a known eugenicist whose legacy is built on racism. Even though Planned Parenthood is moving to separate themselves from Sanger's name, her influence on the abortion giant remains at its core. Thank you. I mean, really, not getting into this right-to-choose argument, we got to know where these ideas are coming from because people have to know when they're getting manipulated. This is a eugenicist. These people believe that no matter what the baby is, kill it. And they're, and they're, they're prevailing this. They're presenting this, and I understand all of the sensitive issues about uh, gender that are re related here. But let's look at where the ideas come from and, and do your research and then reevaluate your thinking. It's an experiment in consciousness. 
Do we want our political actions to be based in eugenics and social Darwinism? Does this create well-being for our children and for our future? Let me say this again. Do we want our political positions to be based in social Darwinism and eugenics? Let's take a look at where these ideas are coming from and be honest about it and then reevaluate our experiment in consciousness with new eyes and new ears and a new willingness to talk to each other because this is eugenicist and we can't run down the road like this and last much longer because we're being played. We're being played according to the records of the United Grand Lodge of England. It was in, April, in February 1844 that Sir Francis Galton became a Freemason at the Scientific Lodge held at the Red Lion Inn in Cambridge, England. Go look up at what's in Cambridge. It's the seat of British academia, the center, the eye of the tiger. And he progressed quickly through the three Masonic degrees, apprentice, 5 February 1844, fellowcraft, 11 March 1844, master mason, 13 May 1844. Okay, you think I'm just talking about a, a, a tin hat thing here now? Please do your research. Don't discredit people. This is coming up more and more often. These people are eugenicists in their writings openly. But what was this secret society? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's the secret teachings of the crown. Who is in charge of the Masonic Lodge today? It's His Royal Highness the Duke of Kent. The United Grand Lodge of England is led by the Grand Master, His Royal Highness the Duke of Kent. That's the royal family. Who was elected more than 50 years ago and is now the longest-serving Grand Master of the top Masonic Lodge in the world. We need to start to look at what are they teaching in this secret society. You know, there's all kinds of secret societies. If you get a Ph.D., basically you're in a secret society. Why? How many of you have had a Ph.D. advisor? How many of you have had a Ph.D. exam, an oral exam? or written a Ph.D. thesis. Where do our ideas come from? Charles Darwin, Herbert Spencer, and Sir Francis Galton. These Darwinist ideas linked to the scientific method are spread throughout the world now, everywhere. These ideas dominate your thinking and my thinking. We have been controlled. We don't have to enter that digital prison that Morpheus is talking to Neo about. We're already in a prison of culture that controls our thinking. We're already in prison. The prison warden just wants to do less work to control us. We still have some freedom. It's messy. They have to put a lot of work into keeping us controlled. They don't want to do that work anymore. It's too much work. They, as technology increases, they figured out how to make the prison more efficient and effective. And we are being led like lambs to the slaughter. So all this red pilling that's going on 
is us waking up and saying, whoa, who's running the show intellectually? And I'm going to tell you, it's Darwinists. And our intellectual fathers, our academics who fought these people, and they fought them bravely in the universities by exposing colonialism and, 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 and fighting against this colonial empire. They lost. And how did they lose? They were bought off. Instead of going back and creating the pop, the proper complementary antagonist to, 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 to evaluate, they also took the, the, the bait of Marxism. Their critique was Marxist. They had given up the true polarity, which is spiritlessness or materialism versus spirit, right? It's there's no God or there's God. It's all material, survival of the fittest, or there is a savior or a God or God consciousness. This is the true polarity that we're fighting over. But somehow in our academic world, the God thing got deep-sexed. Remember the 501c3 non-sectarian education? God got deep-sexed, and we got down to Darwinism and deconstructing colonialism. It was the same argument. The money that funded Spencer and Darwin and Galton is funding the academics today that are talking about decolonization and and equity and, you know, racism and all the things that are dividing the people. We're being controlled by an intellectual process that ignores the truth, that the real polarity is faith versus faithlessness. That's just what it is. I hope you can discover it, because when you discover it on your own, you actually have choice. Your free will is healed. Well-being is a process of healing of recovering our will. We have been imprisoned in a false argument to divide us and control us. That's what the red pill is all about. Take the red pill. Oh, I have people tell me, Professor Penn, they say to me kind of uh, facetiously, you're way too highbrow. People aren't going to get this. You know, I reject that in the same fashion that my father did. My father believed, as do I, that every person is capable of seeking truth in their own way. And my father labored tirelessly to help people develop the ability to think critically. And that's what the Professor Penn podcast is. It's a continuation of the academic tradition of my family. I am here to think critically, to, to, to hone my own thinking, to, to review my own thinking, to pass it on through this medium that we might form a community to examine this together and understand that this, this, this Galtonian social Darwinism came to this country at the beginning and the formation of the country because the colonists came from England. And England was an empire, and the English believed that they were better. That's why they won. They got into a tautology. We're better race because we won. All they were doing was justifying being crooks. You know, that's all they were doing. Their whole academic tradition is a cover story 
to cover up their robbery and their sub their piracy, their drugs, and their slavery. Of course they could do it. They were the best. And the Germans said, no, we're the best. And they had it out. But this goofy-ass philosophy infected our country here. So every uh, academic who's a person of color that screams out that there's systemic racism and we reject it on the right, that's a mistake. We need to really look at our internal racial thought and understand that our thinking, our categories of perception include an idea about race that might involve Dar Darwinist thinking. And if you believe in the origin of the species and evolution, hey, there you go. You got it inside you. You don't believe in the Bible? You don't like Genesis? You're, you, believe in, you believe in evolution, don't you? There it is. Start sorting it out. You believe in the theory of evolution. You were taught it. It's obvious to you. Your culture tells you that's how man developed. If you find that in you, then you go find Spencer and social Darwinism, and then you go find Galton and eugenics and Sanger and abortion, and you take a look at what you're thinking really. In other words, you can't be dumb. You must take the red pill now. Take that red pill. Pick it up. Take it out of my hand and do your research so you understand where your thinking comes from. Otherwise, you're a eugenicist. Sorry, that's just a fact. Sort your thinking out. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? That the Masons exist, that they're the secret society of the crown, that they're teaching a secret knowledge, and Sir Francis Galton, who's the father of, eugenics, of eugenics, applied social Darwinism, was in the Masons. Okay, we'll talk about it more. We don't want to go too far at the beginning because people will start to freak out. And I don't want to freak anybody out because in the, when you take that red pill, you're going to puke, and it's not easy. Sometimes when I'm thinking about things, and I'm going to tell you a personal story, sometimes I'll be doing my, my morning routine, and I have a routine which is intended to maintain my well-being, and it's something I've been working on for 40 years. It's quite an intense thing. I, I would like to teach it, and someday I will teach it to you, but it's something I can't give to you. You have to want it for yourself. And I wanted this information, and I got it, and I've got a beautiful routine. And sometimes when I'm doing my routine, I just get the dry heaves because I'm actually vomiting out the garbage that this culture has put in me. Sometimes you have to throw up to get this stuff out of you so deep into your body, so deep into your cells, these lies and these manipulations have been implanted into you. And when you find that, you'll realize I am not wearing a tin hat. I'm teaching you a practical action plan of healing that we might recover our well-being. The well-being that leads to general welfare. The well-being that provides for common defense. The well-being that brings us to a more perfect union. 
the very well-being that our founding fathers, in a glimpse, in a moment, in a divine moment, saw that could be created here in the United States as they sought to get divorced from this horrifying intellectual tradition that my father, single-handedly, he was the pioneer. He was the man that stood up in front of the entire academic community of the world and said these people were racists in the 1960s. You want to talk about bravery. That's bravery, intellectual bravery. But we have to finish the work. We have to find, that's why he called his, his course racial thought. My racial thought. How do I think about race? So we get into this bizarre thing about, oh, you know, white guilt. And completely, these people that are pitching that are the same people that pitched social Darwinism. It's the same scam. It's a false polarity. It doesn't fix anything. We judge an experimentation of thought by the outcome. Are people becoming more well or less well? $32 trillion of debt. Complete, ridiculous income inequality. And on the verge of nuclear war, this is not working. And if these academics who lead our institutions were so smart, because they're going to come after me, right? Here they come to criticize my story. I'm going to tell you right now, you're telling a story to people. You're just telling a story. And you have the, the power of your Ph.D. and all the Ph.D.s that came before you to justify why your story is so good. And who? Who is the father of this? Oh, Darwin, Spencer, and Golden. I want you to play, please. Fine, get ready this um, Noam Chomsky piece on social Darwinism because people are getting on to this. Let's just, Noam Chomsky is a leftist, but he says something, and he's famous. Let's take a look at Noam Chomsky. There is the social Darwinist view that Herbert Spencer is famous for, for developing that in a capitalist system, you know, the, uh, it'll be nature and bread and blood and claw, the strongest win. And Goldman Sachs is given as an illustration, or maybe IBM and so on. But they're not illustrations. They are illustrations of how the nanny state, the powerful state that's run by the principal architects of policy, designs policy in such a way as to enrich and privilege the designers. What's that got to do with capitalism? I mean, there's a kind of a oh, capitalist stop. fringe to it. I what about just got to stop it for a second. This is incredible. I mean, Noam Chomsky was at one time a line of the left. He was actually a, 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 in the same period of time that my father taught. My father has passed. Chomsky's very old now. He's going to pass very soon. But listen what he's saying. He's saying it's not capitalism. He's saying it's the business model. And this guy is a leftist. This is beautiful. This is going to be the, the uniting of the true liberals with the Americans to fight this business model. And this is what, this is refined thinking. That's why we can't get dumb. We got to get smart. Let's, let's play this here. Policy in such a way as to 
enrich and privilege the designers. What's that got to do with capitalism? I mean, there's a kind of a capitalist fringe to it. But what about Herbert Spencer? Well, at the same time, a little after Herbert Spencer, there was a response, much less known, namely uh, 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 Kropotkin, natural historian who wrote a book called Mutual Aid, a Factor in Evolution. And he argued the exact opposite. He argued that on Darwinian grounds, you would expect cooperation and mutual aid and uh, to develop and leading towards uh, community workers' control and so on. Can you stop? So there's two beautiful things here. One, the the free, uh, the free trade of intellectual discourse had not been interrupted at the time of Kropotkin and Spencer. Spencer came up with a story. Kropotkin came up with a counterargument. That counterargument is going on to this day. Is it survival of the fittest? Or is it cooperation amongst individuals? And what, what is about to be said here is, of course, is both things are functioning at the same time. Chomsky is going to say, well, why couldn't both things be functioning? Well, of course they are. But the point is, I am trying to advance for my first effort at this, is that I think this is keeping the polarity of this argument in a Darwinist perspective. Chomsky is saying, well, there's this Darwinist argument about survival of the fittest, and there's another Darwinist argument about cooperation, but both are Darwinist arguments that preclude a creator. And I think that's where this liberal tradition went wrong as a, as a consequence of their post-World War II disavowal, disavowal of faith because they could not square the circle of 88 million people dying in five years if there was a God. So they threw the baby out with the bathwater as they were going through this experiment. Let's just finish this piece with Chomsky. He didn't prove his point. Uh, it's at least as well argued as Herbert Spencer is. Uh, but and in fact, Kropotkin essentially founded what is now called uh, sociobiology or evolutionary psychology. But his contribution is sort of unmentionable because he came out with the wrong conclusions. Uh, well. It, Nobody could give right conclusions. Human nature probably has all of these factors in it. Uh, but some of them are uh, favorable to the interests of the rich and powerful. So those do survive. And here there is, if you like, a Spencerian element. The ideological concoctions that are beneficial to the rich and powerful, they'll tend to propagate. Uh, the uh, the ones that are harmful to the interests of the rich and powerful will tend to be marginalized and suppressed. But that has nothing to do with the reality of the world. Now, that has to do with how power systems function. Oh, really? So as long as we stay on this Darwinian, this Darwinian antagonist, which is survival of the fittest and uh, cooperation, we're still in that Darwinian world. What Chomsky is saying, the way power structures work is what is amenable and supportive of, of the power structure prevails and everything else is marginalized. So what's being marginalized today is faith. What's being marginalized is faith because materialism has prevailed because of the scientific method and scientific technique. But look what is coming out of this experiment. Look at our lives. Look at our lives. Please, if you are a political activist, Let's be honest with ourselves. What is going on in the world? 
even if you live in an affluent area and you can convince yourself that your life is still good, have the empathy to look at the lives of other people and look at how sad this is becoming when people are becoming so denuded of spiritual well-being. You may have material well-being, and even you and I know that that material well-being does not fill the gaping hole where spirit needs to be. We can feel it. We know it. So we need to go back in another direction and try to recapture a new polarity, which is materialism and spirituality. I want to play one last bit before we continue this next time. Let's take a look at Mitt Romney, because right here, this is why wealthy people are Darwinist and they don't know it. They believe, they think they believe in Christ, but here's what they really believe in. Go get it. Let's get down on Brother Romney. Bain, many have been about the number. You have said 120,000 jobs that you can tie back to decisions you made at Bain Capital. I want you to take your time, sir, and do the math. Do the math and how you get to 100 or 120,000 jobs. I'll do the math, but let me tell you, I know we're going to get attacked from the left, from Barack Obama, on capitalism. I know that people are going to say, oh, you should only practice it this way or that way and think they know better than the private market. My view is capitalism works. Free enterprise works. And I, and, and I, find, it, I find it kind of strange on a stage like this with Republicans having to describe how private equity and venture capital work and how they're successful and how they create jobs. But let me, let me tell you that answer. We started a number of businesses, four in particular created 120,000 jobs as of today. We started them years ago. They've grown, grown well beyond the time I was there to 120,000 people that have been employed by those enterprises. There are others we've been with, some of which have lost jobs. People have ev evaluated that since, uh, well, since I ran four years ago when I ran for governor. And those that have been documented to have lost jobs lost about 10,000 jobs. So 120,000 less 10 means that we created something over 100,000 jobs. And there's some, by the way, that, that uh, were businesses we acquired that grew and became more successful, like Domino's Pizza and uh, a company called Dwayne Reed and others. I'm very proud of the fact that throughout my career, I have worked to try and build enterprises, hopefully to return money to investors. There's nothing wrong with profit, by the way. That profit, that profit, that profit, that profit went to pension funds, to charities. It went to a, a, a wide array of institutions. A lot of people benefited from that. And by the way, as enterprises become more profitable, they can hire more people. I, I'm someone who believes in free enterprise. I think Adam Smith was right. And I'm going to stand and defend capitalism across this country throughout this campaign. I know we're going to hit it hard from President Obama, but we're going to stuff it down his throat and point out it is capitalism and freedom that makes America strong. Well, Zane, we're going to end today, but when we start the next podcast, we're going to start with this very self-same clip and go through uh, Mitt Romney's full-throated defense of the business model of the crown, which is slavery and, and drugs and piracy, which he so eloquently supports and, and defends, looking so patrician. That face belongs on Mount Rushmore, I thought to myself when I saw that. But what he's defending is this same Spencerian, the same Darwinian, the same Galtonian, social Darwinist, eugenicist business model. 
Not one time did he talk about the well-being that his enterprises created. And we'll just say this in closing. This ESG is the wrong formation. It's about human well-being. Again, when you set up the polarity between exploitation and ESG, when you stay on that Darwinist axis, you're being funded by the same people. The argument is being controlled not by we the people, but by those people at the top of the pyramid where money flows uphill and shit flows downhill. So if we're going to change this, we have to get the right formation of polarities, which is materialism and the world of the spirit. And when we get that built and we realize that human well-being comes out of a connection to the spiritual world in the natural way, when we stand on that as truth and we do it in a very nonviolent way, but we demand it of our leaders, and how do we demand it of it? We become the leaders ourselves. We go into the political process. We get elected. We make strong constitutional governance at every level of our political parties. We go in and demand truth and nonviolence. We come together around human well-being. We make sure that every interaction is intended to increase the well-being of all the participants. When we start to demand that, when we recognize that that's possible and that it is the solution to our problems, very quickly, we'll move through this difficult time in American history and establish the foundation of a well-being culture. Thank you so much for being with me. Uh, I love doing this with you. Uh, we'll be back uh, very soon to continue this very conversation. This is David Penn asking you that if you're enjoying this content, please click the subscribe button and please forward this. We need to grow organically. And of course, when I'm covering subjects like this, it's going to be because of viewers like you and listeners like you that this podcast is going to spread. Have a very good day. Thank you very much.